everyone, welcome to a not-quite-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton, and we are doing a rebroadcast today of one of our favorites from the past little while. It is the poem, How to Keep It Down, Slash Throw It Off, Slash Defer Until Asleep, by Justin Philip Reed. Uh, we're doing it in part uh, as part of just in honor of Black History Month. And also, there's a great bit of Obama presidential references in this poem, and we are in the thick of primary season, so we thought this would be a somewhat apropos episode for today. So, um, as always, if you want to get in touch, you can go to our Facebook page, Close Talking, uh, our Twitter, at Close Talking, tweet at Jack, at Jack Rossiter Munn, or me at Connor M. Stratton. You can also give us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And without further ado, here is How to Keep It Down, Throw It Off, Defer Until Asleep by Justin Philip Reed. Welcome to an all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And we have got another great poem for you this week, as in fact we always do, and as in fact I always say we always do. And before we get started, a little request, which I always put, we always put in the end, but I would like to put in the beginning, is if you have a second, if you're on the train, you're in a car, you're walking around, if you're doing the dishes, and you're near your phone, you can open your phone, click on our app, press five stars. If you want to write us a review, that'd be nice. Give us a rating. The more ratings that we can get, it's easier for people to find us. It helps a lot. It's very simple. Thought I'd throw this in at the beginning. So there we go. I've done my big my big plugging uh, for, for the week. So I'm pretty tired. Maybe we should just call it a day. All right. Yeah. Let's get back together in like four hours. Okay. Sounds good. Um and we're back. And it's been four back. hours in podcast magic time. And uh, <laughs> Connor, you're all rested up from that big plug you just did. Now, uh, provided that this wouldn't completely deplete your energy stores, could you plug the poem that you picked for us this week? Because <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. I can, in fact. So maybe you were following some news. The National Book Awards just happened, perhaps probably a month ago at this point. So that's a bit of a stretch of the word just, but in podcast magic time, it basically happened two seconds ago. And Justin Philip Reed, the poet, won the National Book Award for poetry with his book, indecency And it was a huge win. I was very excited, partly because, full disclosure, I did intern for Coffee House Press, which published his book, and because I was reading the book at the time that it won. We picked a really great poem from his book, Indecency. So this poem is called How to Keep It Down, slash Throw It Off, slash Defer Until Asleep, by Justin Philip Reed. My stomach imagines itself as an injury. I steep ginger mint tea in the inauguration memorabilia mug for Mama. Monument white, but for Obama. Between self-harm and my hand, I've rigged a list of reliable illusions. This 
is the first gesture. I am a gentle fist. My body has been deboned of its irony. My life wants to be proven too. I didn't check the list of black church dead in Charleston for friend or cousin, because this morning it was Thursday. Work was quiet after I asked a white girl if she could quit whispering. The hissing hit his reddest Venus notes until a droning rain applauded. His ears ring full of answers to his own knocking when he's home alone, i.e. almost always. Pacing the apartment for a nest in which to knuckle shut and wax unknown, he statues and envisions both spread hands rooting a brown expanse into the kitchen floor's glaucous linoleum. And after, the image on Instagram with heightened contrast, hashtagged, emblem, etc. And producing this proof would require one of his hands. And what if, nearby in the drying rack, a knife shines, impetuous? And it occurs to you that this occurring to you is a thinner ice than most other Thursdays. His skin quickly shucked off a winter's lip. The hour itself murmurs open better yet back like a hangnail, as in persistent rawness and in the wrong direction. You hunker the mug sternum-wise. It's hot as a kind of heart meat, but a blanched blues. And mother your torso around it like a matroshka mold chest sickled over the steaming vent that is the president's head though you pretend it isn't wow there's, there's a lot going on yeah it's uh it's longer it's pretty dense in places he's a more difficult poet in certain ways yeah this uh, was a particularly interesting one at least for me just because I felt like there were a lot of places where I had a firm foothold when I was initially reading it. And I was immediately making a lot of concrete connections that made sense to me while simultaneously having a feeling, a general feeling the first couple of times I read it of not quite in air quotes, getting it. Like I was getting bits and pieces, but the whole was not forming before my eyes in a way that felt satisfactory. That's really interesting. And I think I think probably the poem is deliberately resisting that um, in some ways that are sort of larger scale and probably some ways that are smaller. Maybe we could run through like a brief kind of plot or a play-by-play -play as best as I actually know, you know, what's, what's uh, sort of specifically happening. That might give us a, a good sort of start to think about other things. I think that's an excellent idea. Okay, so our speaker is at home in the apartment. Um, we learn later after work. Uh, the speaker is having tea, steeping tea, has a mug that has Obama on it. It's from his mom. He's feeling at the very least depressed and possibly having like suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation. 
we have the line between self-harm and my hand. I've, I've rigged a list of reliable illusions. So we kind of imagine him alone by himself sort of dealing with that feeling. And then this is around, uh, we learn that this poem, the setting is around, would be like late June of 2015, um, which was around the Charleston shooting, which was when uh, Dylan Roof, a white supremacist, um, shot up a black church. And so we sort of gather from that, that the speaker, like Justin Philip Reed, is from South Carolina, is black, might know people who were killed in the shooting, but is sort of avoiding it. Then he sort of is reflecting on the day. Work was quiet after I asked a white girl if she could quit whispering. And then he's sort of just thinking about the the hissing of the whispering, etc. And then we go back to the apartment alone. He's looking for a nest in which to knuckle shut. So he's still sort of looking how to feel better or more safe or something like that. And then sort of imagines, and this is either, he's, he's imagining, I think, an image of himself basically like lying like on the ground, kind of like spread. Either imagining himself dead on the ground or like an image playing dead kind of thing is is how I am reading it. He statues and envisions both spread hands rooting a brown expanse into the kitchen floor's glaucous linoleum. Glaucous is, means usually like uh, blue-greenish with like the silvery. It's kind of like a plant usually used for plants. And then is imagining having that image being posted to Instagram and what it would require to get the image that it's hard to be dead or play dead on the ground and also take a picture of yourself and post it to Instagram. Would require one of your hands. Then he sees a knife in the kitchen and the thought, I think, of self-harm or suicide becomes more immediate. We have this interesting, it occurs to you that this occurring to you is a thinner ice. So this thought provoked by the knife is closer to home than it usually is, perhaps. And then in response, basically, he hunkers over the mug sternum-wise and basically is using the mug as like a hot vent. And we sort of see him sort of like his chest is covering the mug, sickled over sort of like a crescent. And he gives us this image of the Matryoshka mold so there's like a doll within a doll, et cetera. Um, so the mug, which has Obama's head, is like the head on the inside. And then he's forming sort of the outside mold. And that's kind of where the poem ends. So not much like happens, happens per se. But I thought, especially because a lot of the diction is difficult too, might be helpful just to be as grounded as we can in the beginning. I think that's really valuable because the poem doesn't really put a premium on the narrative. It's much more interested in all of the forces that are acting upon that hinted at narrative. And the and that's, I think, where a lot of the more accessible or immediately recognizable references and images come in is the Charleston shooting. OK, I have like that's a general reference point. I can understand what that is. Inauguration memorabilia. Yes. I've seen what that looks like, whether it's a Republican inauguration, Democrat inauguration, a lot of the same kind of stuff gets created for it. Like, I, I know what that is. I know what a Matryoshka doll is. Like, the signposts that are making it a little clearer on a, on a broader reference level are sort of one step removed 
from the narrative of what the speaker is doing and are more related to what the speaker is thinking or feeling. Yeah, I think that's really right. One big sort of formal move that might be worth highlighting at this point, which I think contributes to some of that kind of distance, I guess, that we feel perhaps from the narrative itself. And and I don't know if this comes out as much when I read it aloud, but when you read it on the page, it's very, I think it's a lot clearer that this happens. So there's three stanzas and the first stanza is in first person. Stomach imagines itself as an injury. I steep ginger mint tea. And then when it goes to the second stanza, it moves into third person, which is like kind of strange. Even though the he that it moves into is presumably still referring to the same person. So the subject doesn't change, but the way to refer to the subject does. So we have work was quiet. After I asked a white girl if she could quit whispering, the hissing hit. And then we line break and stanza break in the middle of that sentence, which is like pretty intense. The hissing hit his reddest Venus notes until a droning rain applauded. And then it's his ears that are ringing full of answers to his own knocking. And then when we go to the third stanza, we've sort of spent that whole second stanza in the, in the third person. We move to the second person. So we have nearby in the drying rack, a knife, and then line break, stanza break, shines, impetuous, and it occurs to you that this occurring to you is a thinner ice than most of the Thursdays. So for me, that's kind of, that's like the biggest formal move that I can sort of see in the poem. Like if you think about it as a piece of architecture, you know, it's like, oh God, I just made myself have to do an architecture analogy, which was really my own choice that I failed and now I don't really know. Um, I guess I would say it's the the scaffolding. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. So it's not like I like, I like that one because I haven't heard it before. Okay. So it's like the scaffolding of a building. Um, rather than say, you know, um, the facade. The facade. It's not the facade. Um, it's not like the way the ceiling looks on the third floor. You know, it's not a very specific micro thing. It's something that's working at the level of the whole building. Whew. Narrowly escaped that one. That was a really good have been a doozy. That ended up being a really good one, though, because I think it is a good <laughs> it's a good point, because that was one of the first things that I sort of noted as I was reading through the poem and was like, oh, this is, you know, we've talked about loud forms before, and this was sort of a loud formal decision where it really sticks out to you as you're reading it, especially as you noted between the first and second, where all of a sudden a sentence is saying I and then switches to saying he. Right. Uh, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I right. what? Yeah, the pronoun switches in the middle of the sentence, even though it's split by the stanzas. That's yeah, that's so it's like very, you'd be hard pressed not to notice it. Because even if you didn't notice and think, oh, the poem is switching pronouns, blah, 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 you'd just be like, why are we now talking about a random dude? Like, right. where did this dude come from? Because you'd still be like, who is he? I haven't been, I don't know this he. And I think you also just feel a little uncomfortable reading that abrupt of a switch. Yeah. Um, and there are some abrupt switches going into the third stanza, but they're more to do with line break placement, I think, than they are to do with pronoun switches. So you get a knife 
and then the stanza break shines. So it cleanly ends the sentence. There isn't a big switch there, but shortly thereafter, you have this really harsh, the word Thursday, half of it's on one line, half of it is on the next, almost like the knife that just got introduced slashed it in half with this really violent line break. Yeah, no, that's really right. With this formal move, yeah, there, I feel like there's, well, there's a lot of things we can say about it, but the two big directions that I'm thinking about are, you know, what is, what's the effect that it has on the reader? And, you know, given the content of the poem, you know, why make this formal? Why, why make this choice? You know, uh, one could easily, it would have been pretty natural in some ways for the poem to either be an all first person, all third person, all second person, there would be differences between those. But the fact of moving from one to the other is pretty, I mean, I've seen it in different forms a little bit before, but not like this ever. Um, and not as sort of clearly delineated. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious, like where you were going with or how it affected you or, you know, what your initial kind of thoughts were about it. Yeah, as I was thinking about it, I kept coming back to the overall feeling that the poem gave me, which was one of intense isolation and loneliness. Because there's really only there's aside from our speaker, there is the white girl at his job who's never given a name. And all she does is like exacerbate the speaker's problems. And there's the mother who is removed other than having given him this mug. She's not present in any way. Even the mug is like a gift that is talked about almost on its own terms. He never like doesn't make a phone call to her. She doesn't call him like they're people are one step removed. This is very much on its own. And so it would seem natural then to just keep saying I, if it's so inwardly focused, it's introspective. The fact that it switches to he and you, to me, accentuated the loneliness and isolation because you start, I mean, he is an impersonal way that a collective could address an individual that they don't care about or that isn't given a name or more personhood. I is still personal. You're writing about yourself. You're imbuing it with this. So he, third person, gets to this kind of not fully mechanized, but it's like kind of distancing. And then you get to you which could be connective, but I think crucially, it's not collective. It's still a singular you. And so even though it could feel like the you is like reaching out, maybe it's addressing, in some instances, you use you to address a reader. Here, it's all pointed back to the I and the he. So I think by putting up he and putting up you, you introduce the idea that there are other people surrounding this individual who's thinking about what's going on with themselves, but you keep them at a distance, thus accentuating the loneliness and isolation that this person is feeling. Yeah, no, that's definitely how I was thinking about it, too. And in, you know, even isolation and but this also this kind of like thinking about self harm, or thinking about suicide, potentially, this that kind of isolation, there's a you're a threat to yourself in a kind of way. And, and I, I think, you know, I don't know, I'm not, uh, I've been in therapy, but I'm not a, a licensed counselor. I don't have a degree in psychology. So everything I might say is hack science. But when I, f I feel like when one is in that position, that kind of distance is necessary as a protective mechanism in some ways. 
because part of you is like, you know, I don't want to die or I shouldn't want to or blah, blah, blah. Um, yet I have these feelings or I find myself thinking about this kind of thing. And that's scary to me. And so suddenly there's like multiple parts of yourself that are in conflict with one another. And so I wonder if the speaker has sort of built this, which I think, which is why the, the Matryoshka mold is so interesting, but basically built these layers of himself to protect himself uh, from himself. And that's kind of how I was thinking about it initially as, as the, from the sort of emotional stakes. And then I started seeing that layers were kind of everywhere. And in the second stanza, it's not quite layers, but we have pacing the apartment for a nest in which to knuckle shut and wax unknown. So he's looking in his apartment for a nest to like go inside of. So we, we get some kind of sense of like needing that kind of respite or that kind of shelter. And then, you know, we have the most obvious images of layers come in the third stanza where we have, you know, it occurs to you that this occurring to you is a thinner ice than most other Thursdays. So there, there's the thinner ice. And so we have this kind of like, you know, there's the above the ice, and then there's the danger, which is below the ice. You know, were the ice to break, that's when, you know, you'd fall in the freezing water and die or whatever, or at least get hypothermia. And that ice, that protective layer of ice is thinner than it usually is. And even the way that the sentence is, the, like, and this occurs to you that this occurring to you is a thinner ice, is another kind of layered you know, way of talking about occurrence, you know, there's two occurrings. And there's this kind of like, there's the you that this occurs to, and then there's the you that this occurs to about the this occurring to you. <laughs> yes, the layers of, of thought and realization where yeah. you see the knife and you have a thought and then you have a thought about the thought about seeing the knife. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then that continues pretty you know, there's like, his skin quickly shucked off a winter's lip, which is an amazing line. Uh, but then we get that shucking. So we're thinking about corn and taking off the outer layer, the husk of a corn. Of a corn. And then um, the hour itself murmurs, open better yet back like a hangnail, which the, the phrasing of it is also very interesting. Um, but we have the image of a hangnail which is where the, what is it? The skin kind of grows over the nail. Or the nail grows under the skin. Or the nail grows under depending the skin. Depending on how yeah. it starts. But it's basically, yeah, I mean. It, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> there's a bunch of really gross pictures on the internet if you're curious and you're like, oh, I wonder what that looks like. I did. You won't wonder anymore. And yeah. you'll, you'll want to take your eyes away. We um, won't post links to that in the notes, but um, feel free to Google image it. I did it. I regretted it, but. It was very informative. Do you want to be filled with regret? Take our <laughs> advice. <laughs> Don't look at hangnails online. No. Um, but again, there is, you know, that introduces another set of layers. You have the skin as one layer and the nail, not in usual form, sort of operating in a layer, but because it's a hangnail, they, you know, one is now suddenly unnaturally under the other. Then we have you hunker the mug sternum wise. Uh, and mother your torso around it like a Matryoshka mold, 
chest sickled over the steaming vent. So then we have, and then this is great, this like the mug that is the president's head, though you pretend it isn't, you know, this mug has the image of Obama. So we have this like inner layer, which is, we need to come back to, of course, um, that's Obama or the mug of Obama. And then the outer layer, which is the body, his body sort of covering it like a Matryoshka mold. So then the quick point after that, after all those layers and thinking about what's a basic function of the pronoun shifts is that is a way of creating an effective layering within the sort of this, the scaffolding of the poem itself, where we begin with this first person, we're at a kind of maybe outer level of the self where we can, we can think about what we're doing, steeping ginger tea, have our mug, mama, that the word, the use of mama is like so intimate, you know, it's not like my mother kind of thing. Um, and so the, the, the self that's in the first stanza has a almost kind of social self. And then in the second, we're getting kind of more inward, I think. And it's interesting too, that it happens because of the, <laughs> the white girl's very annoying hissing whisper. And it's so this, it's actually a kind of social situation that's so alienating to the speaker. And I think in part because you know, we're I mean, he's thinking or trying not to think about the Charleston shooting. There's this incredible white violence against black bodies, which is everywhere, but particularly must be sensitive to the speaker at this time. And he's in this space with this white person who's being, it's not like a big deal, but is being annoying. And that annoyingness sort of jars him out of his maybe social self into this it more inward self with the he. Uh, and there's more I think we can say about the he now that I'm thinking about it. But then to the third stanza, we're getting even more close to both something even more inward, but also where like scary, you know, then the knife shines impetuous. And the that thought provoked by the knife and what he could do with it um, changes it into the you. And then he sort of realizes that he usually tries to insulate himself from the part of him that I think wants to die or wants to, or is just in a lot of pain. And in this moment sort of is brought to a point where he's no longer insulated. That's really interesting. I like that. Because I think it also points to another couple of layers that are operating in the poem, which is there's the political broader social layer. There's the personal social layer. And then there is the inside of the speaker layer that's going on. And they all have their little moments within the poem, but you also see throughout it, the speaker is searching for refuge initially from something like the news about what happened in Charleston. And then from this aggravating coworker, which pulls us into the second stanza where it becomes uh, very centered in the apartment and you get a sense of seeking refuge from the world. But then in that last stanza the struggle to find refuge from the more dangerous impulses within yourself and so i feel like that movement is gently happening through the poem as well oh i was also interested that you brought up the hangnail and the uh the winter skin because i think those are two instances of really benign bodily pain that can sometimes 
could be categorized as pain that you do to yourself. So like you get a little bit of chapped skin on your lip and technically something is going wrong when that happens because you're not supposed to get chapped lips. Like your body isn't really supposed to do that. It's a reaction to something being done to it, but it's a natural impulse to like maybe bite it off. And so in the most benign sense, it is like technically self harm. Like you are harming yourself when you do it. It's like technically that, although it's obviously not what we categorize as that for the purposes of the poem. But I think that and then following that with the hangnail, which when you treat your hangnail, if you get one, is like not super pleasant and can hurt. And you might have to see a doctor. But if it's just a minor one on your finger or on your toe, a lot of times people these are not the ones that people put pictures of on the Internet, by the way, the ones I'm talking about right now. These are like when you notice it's starting to happen at home. Whatever. But like you fix it and it hurts when you do it. And it, again, in the technical sense, falls under the umbrella of some kind of self-harm for like a, a healing purpose. But like you're hurting yourself in the process because it's literally painful. And so to have those two instances of like wounding of the body, kind of a really benign form of self-harm is interesting in that last stanza put against the thoughts of serious self-harm that the speaker is having. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, also like the the chap lips, it's like the body, you never make the conscious choice to get your lips chapped as a response to the winter. That's just something your body does by itself. That then you're like, I got these chap lips, mad about it. Um, got this hangnail, <laughs> I didn't ask for this. <laughs> so it is this, it's this, very real even though benign as you say mostly example of the body and you kind of like at odds with each other um or having reactions that are you know in conflict or intention yeah i think that's a really good point also in the second i like that you brought up the fact that the first has this sort of political sphere and the second goes more to the personal sphere because even though the speaker in the second stanza is feeling very isolated and we're talking about him in the third person and he's pacing alone in his apartment, that's where he's thinking about this image of him, you know, like spread on the floor, but then like posting it to Instagram, right? So there's like this idea of the image on Instagram of his hands, you know, rooting in an expanse against the linoleum, hashtag emblem, etc. Producing this proof would require one of his hands. And so even as isolated as he feels in that second stanza, he's still thinking about this like social element, this sort of like performative aspect of posting this image to Instagram and the, even the idea of, you know, writing about it, like describing it as emblem, etc., which is very funny in a sort of dark way. But the fact that even thinking about that as the emblem, sort of the kind of the symbol of this other state is another sort of layering where you have the kind of, you have the feeling itself or whatever, and then you have the emblem that represents that feeling. And then you have the Instagram with the filter, heightened contrast, obviously, that's another kind of gloss over. But I think you're right that then in the third stanza, Instagram doesn't exist. There's no there's no outside world 
to connect to, even in some kind of like performative way or like just posting something, not really like, hey, I'm reaching out kind of thing. That's all gone from the third stanza, I think. And even uh, in that third stanza, the apartment contracts down to basically two objects, a knife and a mug. And yeah. the political is brought back in a little bit because he talks about that it is the president's head that you pretend it isn't. I think that points back to some of the political layer. And I actually kind of went through doing a bit of a political reading, which we can get to in a minute. But I think that that last stanza just further constricts things into into one very small space because you kind of almost have this image of a person in their kitchen holding a mug and there's like a knife in the drying rack. And that's kind of all you're given in that last stanza. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And the kind of like the imagistic world opens up or like the figurative world opens up, but the the literal world, yeah, is very constrained. It occurs to you that the that this occurring to you is compared to a thinner ice skin quickly shucked off a winter's lip. The hour, so time is compared to opening like a hangnail. And those are all very vivid images, um, very vivid, but are attaching themselves to very abstract concepts. Yeah, and you're totally right. It's just a mug and the knife. And in um, those two images, you sort of get one that is harm, the knife, and one that is comfort and connection, the mug from his mother. Yep. Um, and one of those is about severing and cutting apart and cutting away and doing damage. And the other is about a warm, nurturing beverage contained in something that was given to you by another person, a healthy Theoretically, we don't know about the relationship, but I think because mama is used, it points towards like an affectionate relationship or a, famili a familiar familial relationship rather than estranged or something, not knowing you know the reality of it. But the sense you get in the poem is that this is a connective and nurturing object put against the shining knife. Yeah, I think that's really right. I love how it's described too. It's like you hunker the mug sternum wise. A is just... The sounds are so beautiful and just like such a weird, like I never would imagine any of those words together, um, but they work, but they have all those U sounds that are really nice. You hunker the mug sternum wise and like hunkering down, but also then used as a transitive verb, like with the direct yeah. object, like you hunker the mug, not like you hunker down with the mug. It's like it gets it so much more immediate. And then describing the mug as hot as a kind of heart meat, but a blanched blues is like very fascinating and somewhat opaque. But we have the hot as a kind of heart meat. There's this it's it's close to you. It's it's warming you, but it's fleshy and kind of a gross way. Heart meat. Um but then, but a blanched blues is very interesting. I mean, it's a beautiful phrase, but then we think of blanching, which is like, you know, also very hot because uh, when you blanch a vegetable, you know, you're just like boiling the crap out of it, right? And then you like put it in ice or something to cool it. I think that's the blanching process. It's been a while since I blanched something, I have to confess. But then it's a blues, so it's kind of sad, and there's this kind of like we're now we're thinking about the blues, and but which is also a kind of genre that is both melancholy but also warming, you know, um, in some sort of way. And then you mother your torso, which is like a 
a great verb that brings in, I think, the mug and the mug's connection to his own mother, uh, that now he's he has a relationship to his own torso in the form of a mother. And then the line, chess sickled over the steaming vent, is very fascinating. The mug is a vent, which is like just cool to think about. Obviously, it makes sense that steam's coming out of it. But but then the word sickled is is very interesting. So we have the the image of a sickle as a as the kind of crescent shape. So we can sort of see the chest curved like a crescent over the mug, but the sickle has obviously darker connotations. It is a blade. It is has the association with the reaper. Uh, it also has maybe we're thinking about corn again, uh, or like sickles in the fields. I don't know. It's just like sickled, like in that word is so strange. So I well, really go far. Oh my God, Jack has the answer for me. I don't know if I have an answer, but I have some thoughts. Okay. Um, the first thing I want to hop to is on the subject of blanching is that <laughs> in the bodily sense, you would say somebody blanched means that like all the color drains out of their face. And we've already had this mug, which is for Obama, the first black president. And it is already described as monument white, but for Obama. So it's like a white mug that I guess has his face on it, or it's kind of unclear, or maybe it is a mug that like is the shape of his face, but it's made out of white material. Because <laughs> um, when you say inauguration memorabilia, I'm just going like super kitschy. And I'm so I'm imagining it like as literally it's Obama's face. But because it keeps getting described it's as the president's head. It's not like a mug with the president's picture on it. So anyway, yeah. that's my image of it. There's obviously like room for. That's interesting. It's not strictly described, but that's how I envisioned it. But on the subject of this uh, sickling you speak of. Let me speak to you about the political uh, reading that I gave this poem. Oh, good. Because good. obviously it, it seems like a lot of the focus is on the speaker and their mental health. The overlay that is given for it, as we've discussed a little bit, is sort of the political, I don't know what you want to say, the political events of the time, but kind of generally just like what is happening on a social level that is so distressing to the speaker. And there are a bunch of different ways that I think this poem very adroitly points back to that, even while interrogating the very particular inner workings of the speaker's mind and ways that in fact, the political is infiltrating even these more guarded personal spaces that the speaker is trying to create for themselves. So you start off with what is literally a gut feeling. My stomach imagines itself as an injury. And this is where I started down my political road because it reminded me of something that the character of Roy Cohn says. Gastric juice is churning. This is enzymes and acids. This is intestinal is what this is. Bowel movement and blood red meat. This stinks. This is politics, Joe. This is the game of being alive. And, and, and you think you're... Now, the subject of the body politic is one that obviously exists. We talk about it all the time. The relationship of like a citizenry to being similar to a body and it's either healthy or diseased. It's either well or it's unwell. And there are all different measures for that. But particularly the idea of it being the game of being alive or as Hunter S. Thompson said, politics is uh, a means of controlling your environment. 
which is another, I think, interesting window into ways of thinking about what, what do we mean when we say politics? What's it actually about? And so I was thinking of sort of both of those as we, as I was reading the poem and thinking about that in concert with a poem that's very interested in damage to the body versus a healthy body, either mentally or physically. And there are a couple of different places again. So later on, Monument White But for Obama, this happened long after the poem was written, but the recent designs for the Obama Presidential Library are literal ivory towers. So it's ways that even though Obama's election was a monumental event, some things, structural elements of how the United States works were left unchanged. And in fact, there have been many critiques of Obama that he wasn't liberal enough, and that being in the office of the president necessarily constrains not the current president, because he has, you know, his own nonsense bullshit. But if we could call it discursive space of the presidency necessarily constrains many of the people who are there. So even those who are more liberal, either can't get elected to it, or once they are elected out of a perceived need to compromise or a perceived inability to advocate for the positions they would want in favor of the ones they think are possible, you end up in a situation where, you know, monument white, but for Obama. Yes, Obama is the first black president, but this mug that either has his picture on it or is in the shape of his head is still white. There's still an essential whiteness to the structuring of uh, the American state. And then a little later on in that stands up, my life wants to be proven, line break two. Again, I was sort of reading this poem, the speaker being the writer, the writer is black, my life wants to be proven. Obama was asked over and over again throughout his presidency to prove that he was an American citizen. His very life had to be proven through his birth certificate. Uh, the timing of this poem around the events in Charleston is also just a couple of months after Donald Trump, the person who started the whole birtherism nonsense, announced his candidacy for president. And by this point, it was becoming clear that he wasn't just going to be treated as an entire joke. At the beginning of the next stanza, we have a droning rain. One of the major critiques of the Obama administration was, in fact, that he did not do a whole lot to curtail the drone program, which rained bombs down upon the Middle East. And that continues to intrude upon our, uh, upon our more personal side are, again, these little Moments that point us back towards the political, I think, or at least did for me as I was reading it. And then in this last stanza, at the end, we have the Matryoshka mold and the chest sickled. Put me in mind of the fact that Obama was constantly being called a socialist. He was going to give you socialized medicine with the uh, Affordable Care Act. Fun fact, that became more popular than it was unpopular between Donald Trump's election and Obama leaving office. It was the day before Obama left office that that switched over. So amazing. Crazy how these things happen. Anyway, you have this pointing back, I think, because the president's head comes up right afterwards to the idea that there is this, you know, really unproductive, divisive, false, uh, fear-mongering rhetoric around whether or not Obama was uh, a communist or a socialist. And that was meant to point back to this, like, scary Russian Stalin vision of communism from the Cold War, which magically disappears as soon as the question is not about Obama, but about Donald Trump. Uh, and then you get to the president's head, and it says, over the steaming vent that is the president's head, though you pretend it isn't. And I was thinking about a couple things there, but primarily I was thinking about the fact that for there to be a mug in the shape of the president's head, or even just with a picture of the president's head on it, with the top of it to be open, and the fact that at the beginning, we're, we're looking at this incident of white violence against black bodies in Charleston. 
I was remembering that I was in Grant Park for Obama's uh, victory speech on election night in 2008. And Connor and I both have a friend who I invited along, which I thought was being a very good friend about. Uh, and he refused to go because his parents were afraid that Obama was going to get shot that night. And there was a lot of fear for a long time. And there probably continues to be. I, I just remember it particularly in like 2008 to 2010. There was a lot of fear that something was going to happen to Obama after he got elected. And the fear of violence being done to Obama because he was the first black president. Um, racialized violence done against him. And so I was also having images of the Kennedy assassination videos and just like the idea that you don't want a steaming vent in the president's head, particularly not this president, particularly not when what is happening is, you know, black church dead in Charleston. Uh, that that would be the fear, because also around this time is when a lot of the contemporary conversation we we are having in a more public and popular way about white nationalism and extreme groups. This is when it was really ramping up. This is there's a documentary that uh, a BBC reporter made about the KKK. He started shortly before the Charleston shooting, but was with them when it happened and went with them to the protests that happened afterwards. Um, Cause that also precipitated a conversation about the removal of Confederate flags. Cause the, the Charleston shooter had Confederate flags and was talking about them, but the amount that their already distressingly high number of calls of interest of joining the Klan, the amount it went up after what happened in Charleston is staggering. It's like thousands and thousands of calls a day to this one lady who lives and runs her little clan <laughs> chapter. But I think having that, as the kind of end image of like hunkering down, wanting to take comfort in this mug, this connection, the idea that, you know, this president is there, but even that image is complicated and, and, uh, and made to be in some ways threatened. So that that's my big political reading. Yeah. I had made a couple connections like that, but that was like, whoo, that was good. And it's interesting. Yeah. You talk about, you know, the way the the last line that, you know, the mug that is the president's head, though you pretend it isn't, there's kind of two ways to read, though you pretend it isn't. One is the way you were talking about, you don't want a steaming vent in the president's head. You don't want him to be injured. You don't want to imagine the first black president this way. But the other way is in this time, you know, at, in the aftermath of this like sort of brutal racist white supremacist act of violence you're trying to take comfort in something and barack obama is not giving you the comfort that you want and so you don't actually want to imagine this as the president's head in this moment and along the lines of what you were saying about the the layering that's going on and having this mug be at the central layer with the you know sickling your torso over it having that be the image at the center uh, also put me in mind of what Obama said shortly after the the shooting of Trayvon Martin, which was, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon Martin. And that level of connection that it feels like the speaker is also having, there's that simultaneous like contested relationship with this mug and with Obama that felt like to me was going on. Because there are these moments where the speaker seems to be reaching out for comfort, but also, as I said, like, a droning rain comes up and monument white, but for Obama, it seems to be constantly complicating how much comfort is there really there. Yeah, that's a really good point. The other way that to tie it 
to think about these stanzas and, and that political reading and the mental health reading. So the, the title, which is kind of interesting, I, I then I sort of figured out at least one way to do it. So it's kind of an odd thing because it's how to keep it down slash throw it off slash defer until asleep. There's initially a question of, you know, what is the it? How, what, what are you trying to keep down? But then when I was thinking about the three stanzas that are so distinct from each other in terms of POV, you know, it seems like the first one, how to keep it down is like the first stanza. And then if you can't keep it down, how do you throw it off? Which is like the second stanza. And then if you can't throw it off, how do you defer it until you're asleep? And so it, I think, is kind of like whatever kind of pain or ideas of self-harm or suicidal ideation or fear in some ways, perhaps, um, because of, you know, what's going on. You know, how do you handle that? And it gets kind of increasingly, like, defer until asleep is like the saddest one because it's, it's really there's... The only thing you're hoping for is just to wait it out until your body's tired and then you wake up, but nothing's really changed except time has passed. Anyway, very, very complex thing happening there. Um, and I think I'm not... very complex could be, I mean, that's how I think about this poem. It is just <laughs> incredibly complex on a yeah. whole lot of different levels because as you pointed out, everything about this poem has layers. Even every individual line seems to be operating on more than one level when you start looking at it, which I know is like kind of how analysis of poetry always works and you wring all the meaning you can out of different bits. But more than many poems you might read, even little individual pieces of this poem turn into just like a whole waterfall of possible readings and meanings and interpretations and and uh, and it's really quite something. Should we read it again? No, I think you should read it again. Read it again. All right. How to keep it down. Throw it off. Defer until asleep. My stomach imagines itself as an injury. I steep ginger mint tea in the inauguration memorial mug from Mama. Monument white but for Obama. Between self-harm and my hand, I've rigged a list of reliable illusions. This is the first gesture. I am a gentle fist. My body has been deboned of its irony. My life wants to be proven to. I didn't check the list of black church dead in Charleston for friend or cousin because this morning it was Thursday. Work was quiet after I asked a white girl if she could quit whispering. The hissing hit his reddest Venus notes until a droning rain applauded. His ears ring full of answers to his own knocking when he's home alone, i.e. almost always. Pacing the apartment for a nest in which to knuckle shut and wax unknown, he statues and envisions both spread hands rooting a brown expanse into the kitchen floor's glaucous linoleum. And after, the image on Instagram with heightened contrast 
hashtagged, emblem, etc. And producing this proof would require one of his hands, and what if nearby in the drying rack a knife shines, impetuous? And it occurs to you that this occurring to you is a thinner ice than most other Thursdays. His skin quickly shucked off a winter's lip. The hour itself murmurs open better yet back like a hangnail, as in persistent rawness and in the wrong direction. You hunker the mug sternum wise. It's hot as a kind of heart meat, but a blanched blues and mother your torso around it like a matroshka mold, chest sickled over the steaming vent that is the president's head, though you pretend it isn't. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or, at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or uh, work we should discuss, please let us know, tweet at us, or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com. <laughs>